Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International Podcast. Thank you for tuning in once again. For those of you, um, if it's your first time here, Strategy International is um, a global think tank that brings together great minds from all over the world that uh, research, discuss, and analyze topics of global interest, such as international relations, policy, strategy, defense, economy, and much, much more. Um, speaking of great minds, we have another great guest today. Uh, before we get to that guest, uh, let me remind you all to go to strategyinternational.org for all information on Strategy International, all the research papers, webinars, and all the interesting things happening over there. Uh, today we have Stefano Delady, uh, a senior executive and expert in uh, international trade and business with over 35 years experience in the private sector uh, for a number of uh, multinationals. And industries, and he's also a senior consultant on international trade and business over at Strategy International. Stefano, thank you so much uh, for accepting our invitation. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, I want to get right to it because I'm very excited. We're going to talk uh, about China. Uh, we haven't had the opportunity to have people with the experience and knowledge of that region in other podcasts. We have done a few, but not that many. Uh, so every time we get an opportunity to talk about that that very specific region um I, I, i'm particularly excited um now of course you know china we're going to talk about you know the the role it's had strategically geopolitically and uh, economically and of course for everyone uh or anyone that's been following the developments over the last five six years they've certainly uh noticed that you know the chinese relations especially with the west have been more and more fragile um, and I want to reference uh, an editorial that you wrote a couple of months ago. And for anyone interested, they can find that at strategyinternational.org. Uh, it's entitled, Is the Western Gold Rush to China Over and What is the Alternative? Uh, a very interesting title. Uh, and in this editorial, you suggest that there seem to be more and more Western companies that are leaving China. Uh, now, for the benefit of the people listening or watching, can you take us through that? Can you give us a... Uh, a little brief explanation on what you um, what you wrote about and the reasons why you think this is happening. Well, thank you first of all for having me. As uh, as I mentioned, I think it's important to look back how China became what we have come to know in the last uh, twenty years or so. Uh, everything started with Deng Xiaoping, who first decided to open China after the death of Mao Zedong. Uh, Deng Xiaoping was the first one who actually opened the Chinese economy to the West. And, and uh, it, it started happening in Shenzhen region, just north of Hong Kong, where he was originally from. Um, so for, for almost uh, four decades, uh, China has enjoyed an incredible rush of Western company moving uh, to, to, the, to the country and to the region. Um, many of the reasons are, and, and, and we will explore some of them, but Fundamentally, in the beginning, there was a, a need to enter a market and uh, and possibly use uh, at a time where uh, more capital intensive, uh, well, sorry, I should say more uh, labor intensive activities are were involved vis-a-vis. -vis you had more workers doing 
single activities to manufacture a single product versus a, a automation process. Um, so China offered an incredible opportunity, low cost of labor, massive productions of, uh, of units uh, that made it cost effective. Um, and so this has, has gone on for almost 40 years, as I said. And then uh, I think with the election of Xi Jinping as, as new president, with the China becoming more uncertain into the region, and then obviously uh, the most recent pandemic has caused many Western companies to realize that they have put too many eggs in one single basket. Now, we are not here uh, to discuss whether uh, Xi Jinping uh, uh, re-elections or current uh, position is right or wrong. It's just a fact. And, and as has, uh, has led not only Western company to be concerned uh, about you know relying to one single source of uh, supply of goods and services, but also has led many Chinese to consider relocating their operations. We have seen uh, some of the most famous uh, Chinese billionaires uh, disappear or leave China and, and, and see their fortune being cut apart uh, for different reasons. But um, yes, uh, the trend is uh, indeed uh, true. Uh, there are a number, a significant number of Western companies that for different reasons have decided to relocate their operations either back into the, con the original continent, so North America or Europe, or some have decided to remain in the region and continue to service a market that is huge because China is 1.4 billion people. Uh, India has surpassed China in population. So we are looking to a, a global, of a global population of about 7 billion and half of it they, they are just almost made by two countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have relocated to, to countries like Vietnam that has signed agreements with, for example, with Europe for zero tariff. And other, other countries in the region will have offered alternative, sound alternative to China while remaining in the region. So yes, the trend is true. The trend is, is confirmed that I have actually been asked by some companies to provide the uh, intelligence and risk analysis on the countries, and the trend is on less investments with so-called WUFI, a wholly owned foreign enterprise into China, and with more flexible uh, and almost to, to the level of the beginning with joint venture, well, commercial, more, more commercial agreement than real capital investment into China. How generalized is this? Um, are, are we just seeing the beginning of this kind of move or this trend, or it's significant enough to start thinking that there's a general kind of approach to leaving China? I think I think it depends from the industry. There will be industry that will still invest in China and they will maintain a presence in China, especially in the in the EV, in the electric vehicle. Uh, because China is definitely the largest market in the world and they are just spearheading the market. So you will see some industry stay and, and perhaps continue investing. Uh, Volkswagen depends heavily on the Chinese market for their results. But you will see also other companies reconsidering uh, the need uh, to position their manufacturing and their sourcing elsewhere. And for example, France had an issue with paracetamol, uh, a basic element of a medication similar to aspirin uh, and, and the lack of, uh, of availability. Most of the material comes out of either India or China. And the pandemic has shown us that we became over-dependent uh, from some countries. So I think uh, 
there will not be a, a complete exit. It will not be similar to a, a bank rush, but we'll definitely will see a, a, a rethinking, a strategic rethinking that has to do more with the fact of not having the supply chain damaged by, by whatever reason, uh, that is a pandemic or geopolitical issues, more than political. Uh, it, it's a consequence. So I, we have also to, uh, to consider that uh, as a cause of the pandemic, large number of vessels in the container business uh, were stopped uh, and, uh, and the price of logistics skyrocketed. So uh, this has heavily impacted many companies that were sourcing from China. So it was not only the issue of factory in China getting stopped, but it was also the issue that if you were able to get the goods out of the factory, it would take forever to have them shipped and the price of shipping went off the roof. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, I had uh, investigated a quotation for a container uh, from, uh, from Italy, from the port of Genoa to uh, Baltimore in, in, in Maryland in the United States. And before the pandemic, we were talking about $1,900 for a container, 40-foot container. And right in the middle of the pandemic, the price went to $10,500. So 10 times the price. Uh, And this went all over the world. Uh, There were airlines and and shipping lines, and they were making lots of money out of of the the shipping costs because there were less vessels available. And, and there was a rush to get things out because our supply chain was stopping. So I have I have been talking to companies in the automotive industry. They were heavily depending from components from China. They are completely rethinking their supply chain. And they started that uh, not yesterday, but roughly 18 months ago. Right. Now, these countries in, the South, in Southeast Asia that are benefiting from this transition, how prepared are they? to satisfy the volumes required. I mean, what, what impact will this have for China, but also for the profitability of all these companies? I mean, in the long term, will they be able to sustain themselves? Well, yeah, I, I think so. And first of all, we have to realize that China China started as a labor intensive and moved on into capital intensive, therefore having more equipment, machinery, and robotics. Because let's not forget that China is leading the robotic too in the manufacturing you have a lot of automizations. It's still a quite significant labor work, but you have more and more robotics because in China, there is also an issue that a lot of young people don't want to spend hours in a production line assembling things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was extremely lucky when I was in China myself. I had a very high retention level, but the average uh, Western company in China had a, a retention where they saw rotations of their workforce of roughly 35 to 40% annually. So every year you had 35 to 40% of your workforce leaving you um, because people wanted more money or because they simply didn't want to endure long hours standing in in assembly or manufacturing, embracing, welding components. So I think uh, these other countries are, are grasping some of that business um, they, are, they have a competitive pricing because the Chinese themselves have moved some of the manufacturing out of China into those countries. For example, I've met with a, a company that was working in, a, in a sportswear and swimming suits, beachwear, and they, they were Chinese, but they moved their manufacturing to Vietnam. So the products label yet made in Vietnam, but it's actually a Chinese company that mm-hmm. is using the capital, or should I say, 
labor-intensive activity out of the, of the country. Um, they offer attractive pricing, uh, and they still have a door into get into China. So yeah, I think it is sustainable. All right. I want to talk a little bit about energy. Uh, last year, uh, you wrote another editorial, and again, for anyone interested, strategyinternational.org, on China's you know desperate need for energy and natural resources and how that need could potentially, potentially create a shift in, in global alliances and, and essentially the balance of power. Uh, several months later, uh, and especially earlier this week, we, we, we all saw the Chinese president visit Russia, uh, a visit that seems to have solidified even more their alliance and through which an agreement was made to build a second pipeline uh, to China. What does this alliance mean for the for the rest of the Western world and their position on the Russia-Ukraine war? Well, it's very interesting. The, 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 the issue of uh, natural resources, uh, whether that's for energy or for, for living, uh, because we are talking about gas and oil, but let's not forget there is another component that is crucial to human life: is water, mm-hmm. um, and they are definitely in high demand in China. And uh, today we have, were on Monday there was a visit of Xi Jinping uh, in Moscow. This obviously to solidify under the umbrella of a peacekeeping, but there was no peace or peace initiative. But actually, we haven't seen any peace initiative coming out. Any real. A solid, viable uh, peace plan. So this was more a commercial agreement where China is a strong partner into this relationship where they're muscling and, and securing very low cost uh, uh, energy sources from, from Russia who can sell it now to the West. So I think uh, uh, the Chinese are, uh, uh, let's say, playing a very thin line between, between neutral and, 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 and taking advantage of a desperate need of, uh, of the Russian Federation uh, to sell their resources and, and, and get money to, to run the country, if not the war. So, what so message- I, I think uh, it's definitely a, a, in a, almost an abusive relationship masked as a, as a love affair, but it, it's in a relationship where China is getting out more than the Russia is getting out. So what message is China sending to the Western world that has seemed to uh, to, cr- to have created this coalition against China, against Russia? And then suddenly you have China making these steps and taking these initiatives that are going kind of countercurrent from what the rest of the world is doing. Well, China, China, it, it, let's not forget that China has begun long ago in expansion mode, even though they, 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 they classify themselves not as a colonial power. They're acting very much like a colonial power, and so they uh, neo-colonial. So they are expanding and they are taking advantages. What leads what what China and, and Russia have in common is a dislike uh, on on the hegemony that the United States have been sort of uh, enjoying since the end of World War II. Mm-hmm. So they're they feel they feel that they have to they have a common enemy, and that's what unites them. And, and this is amazing enough. Uh, uh, the the um, the work that was done by the administration Nixon and administrations and the Secretary of State Eric Kissinger to sort of drive a wedge between Russia and the Soviet Union and China has been completely reverted by the previous previous American administrations and and you have seen now 
more Russia and China coming together. But then again, let's not fool ourselves. It's not a complete love affair. It's it's a it's a self-serving uh, approach by China to secure energy and, and to secure a, a support for its expansions. And we we're seeing this in in the Sea of China and the South Sea of China. We see it how China is uh, is securing and diverting water from the Himalaya into into the mainland China and and drying the water that flows through the Himalaya into into Nepal into Myanmar into Vietnam Laos and Cambodia and ends into the sea through the Mekong Mekong Valley. So I I think China is definitely moving toward protecting its own interests like most country will normally do. But in the process, is is uh, agitating and, and, uh, and, and, and making a lot of country in the region very concerned. So obviously, Myanmar is very close to China, mm-hmm. but Thailand and and Vietnam are and the Philippines and and uh, and South Korea are definitely concerned, and Japan as well. So we are we are seeing a, a resurgence of those countries and their concern in the in the expansion that China is having. Let's not forget that China claims that South Seas of China is their own water, territorial water for for both fishing as well as as uh, uh, oil extraction in the sea, and this has caused issues in Vietnam, in the Philippines, in Indonesia, uh, in Malaysia, because they there is part of Malaysia that is also in that southern part of the Sea of China. So China is, is trying to secure. The natural resources from Russia is trying to secure natural resources from the Middle East, from Africa, and and, uh, and natural resources in terms of water from the Himalaya, causing tensions in the in the Southeast Asia. I want to go back to what you're saying about the peace deal, and uh, everyone pretty much was following that meeting. And yes, there were some um, suggestions that they would, uh, discuss about a peace, uh, a peace accord between Russia and Ukraine. I agree with you. We didn't see anything, uh, come about, but do you think that China could potentially succeed where others have failed in negotiating a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine? Um, I seriously doubt it. Uh, they are not a credible, uh, neutral party. Uh, they are financing by buying the oil, from uh, and gas from from uh, Russian federations there has been re- been re- there have been report out of costume clearance that, that weapons uh, assault rifles sold as hunting rifles have been sold uh, but they are copy of American M4 systems and being sold uh, to to the Russian federations um, so in order to be a, a, a peace uh, or a peace break uh, broker you have to be truly neutral and and uh, and china has not been able to show that uh traveling traveling to the region and not going to kiev and only stopping in moscow stopped uh, any any credibility as a neutral party and and a peace breaker it's obvious that the, the ties are much closer with russia but what do you think that the western world will make of this Um, do you think they will resort to sanctions against China like they did uh, with Russia, or is that too far-fetched? No, I think I think it's too early to talk about sanctions. I think uh, uh, there is a there is obviously a concern uh, that China is aligned more and more with the Russian federations. But that said, 
let's not forget that China uh, cannot uh, substitute Western Europe and North America with Russia. Uh, the Russian population and Russian market cannot absorb the quantity of, of product that China is counting on exporting. So I I think they're walking a very thin line. Uh, and uh, in, in total uh, in total analysis, I think when we are looking at what China is doing, I think China is, is basically trying to test the depth of the water should they decide to do something in Taiwan. Mm, interesting. Speaking of that, um, there seems to be quite an effort internationally for regional pressure towards China. Uh, we saw the Trans-Pacific Partnership coming into force in 2018. Uh, the Indo-Pacific Partnership announced back in 2022. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw you know major announcements in the AUKUS agreement where the UK uh, and U.S. Uh, presidents um, announced that they would provide Australia with nuclear submarines. You know, from the Chinese perspective, how do you think this is perceived? Well, it's, it's perceived as, as a containment. Um, the question is why why they're perceiving as a containment because there is an expansion. Uh, so uh, the problem is that, the, that both sides are seeing the world as uh, their own uh, center. I often use the analogies that if you were to travel to Europe and pick a, in a bookstore an atlas, you will find Europe in the middle, the Asia Asia on the on your right, and the Americas on the left. Uh, if you go to to North America, if you pick a similar book, you will find the Americans right in the center, Europe to the right, and Asia to the left. Obviously, if you're going to Asia and you pick an atlas, you're going to find that Asia is right in the center. So the issue here is that Asia sees themselves, or China in particular sees themselves the center of the world. They see that the world is shifting toward Asia for whatever reason that we can elaborate. Uh, and so they, they, they start taking a more certain positions. Now, if you were to look at the map of, of the world, and, and in particular that specific area of uh, China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and the Philippines, we, if we look straightforward, you will see China on the top and Vietnam uh, on, the, on the south, Japan up in the north with Korea, and then south, uh, you will have Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia. Uh, but if you were to take the map and rotate and, and have China right on the, on the center front and uh, Japan on your left, uh, uh, and the, the Philippines on your right, they see that part of the of the sea being blocked by Taiwan, and and therefore they see this as a, as as a blocking uh, a step for them to expand into the Pacific. The problem that the Chinese uh, don't realize too that America is facing part of the of the Pacific. So America sees themselves. Not only as America as American continent, United States as a as a state inside the American continent, but they see themselves as also as a Pacific because they have a large part of their the, their territory facing the Pacific, whether it's the Alaska, California, or Oregon, and and, um, and the state Washington, Hawaii, and Guam are our territory of the United States in the Pacific. So we, you have a natural competition in the region. I think. Uh, the, the fact that Australia and UK and United States have signed an agreement to supply nuclear submarine to, to Australia 
should not be as an, understood as a supply nuclear attack submarine. This is a submarine who have the capability to be out at sea for a longer time versus diesel submarines. So that what concerns uh, China is that this submarine could be actually stationed out at, at sea for a longer time, not the fact that they can strike us China with nuclear weapons because Australia has no 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 aggressive attitude toward China. Uh, and that is is to be definitely understood. So it's a geo, geopolitical envision of each one of these players and how they see themselves in the Pacific that is creating all this tension. The world has accepted that there is one China and two systems. What China, the world is concerned is how things have changed, even though this agreement existed for Hong Kong and Macau. They are concerned to see this, this change of rules which happened in a, in a, in a, um, ahead of the schedule uh, has occurred in Hong Kong and Macau. They are concerned to see this happening in, uh, in Taiwan with perhaps the use of force, which is uh, it's, it's, it's not an ideal scenario you will want to see. Do you think it's, um, it's a feasible scenario that, uh, that sooner than later uh, there will be some um, uh, military action there? Um, it, it is something that is being considered, and, and, and in the United States, uh, there are <clears throat> think tanks and strategic groups that are uh, considering the effect of a of a possible conflict. They envision the loss of a two aircraft carrier by the United States, the massive losses of of China, um, and the possible invasions of Taiwan by by the People Liberation Army. Uh, we hope that this scenario will not play out. Yeah. The concern is that uh, China is trying to assert themselves and America and the United States uh, has not done much to, to appease or uh, to de-escalate. De uh, the visit of uh, the, um, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, last year uh, to Taiwan has accentuated the tensions. Uh, the United States is currently conducting training of Taiwanese troops in California. And uh, there are uh, the, the number of advisor, military advisor to Taiwan has increased uh, by the United States from, I believe, a few, few, fewer than 10 to almost 200 today. So this is, is seen by China as, a, as a, an act of interference and uh, not recognitions of one country to systems. Um, so I think more effort has to be done to de-escalate. But I don't see anything de-escalating in the near future, not in, in the next uh, twenty-four months. Because when you see all these uh, all these agreements that are done, and you look at it from China's perspective, it's it feels as though pretty much everyone around them is uh, is pressuring China. Almost everyone in the region. Uh, and, and I was just thinking, what kind of retaliatory strategy could China engage in against all this pressure? Well, let's let's not forget that these actions are occurring as a result of actions that were undertaken by China in the first place. Now, I'm not discussing that is right or wrong, but it, it, when you when China start mili, uh, start turning uh, coral reef into artificial islands and reclaiming this coral reef into islands and turning them to military installations, um, this has created concern in the region. Uh, for concern in 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 territorial waters uh, that uh, contested on existing islands and these new islands because you realize that once you have an island 
you can dictate a 12 nautical miles as your territorial water. If you start building artificial islands, uh, reclaiming um, coral reef and turning them into islands, uh, then you are automatically expanding your territorial waters and uh, and you're reducing the, the freedom of navigation. So this has created concern not only in the West that depends on these waters to be a source of of, of route for ships and vessels to, to carry goods and, uh, from, from Asia to the West, but it's also creating tension locally. Uh, about five years ago, there was uh, there were civil unrest in Vietnam caused by the fact that the Chinese put an oil rig in the Vietnamese territorial water. Um, so uh, China has has uh, has claimed uh, territorial water uh, as as expanded. They have invested heavily in their navy. This has created concern concern in countries that for a long time were not particularly uh, friendly to the West. Uh, Vietnam uh, fought for a long time for his own independence. Uh, it used to be a, a colony. It was colonized originally by the Portuguese, and then it was all, became a, a Japanese colony, a French colony. Then it became it, uh, occupied territory during World War II by the Japanese. It was liberated and became again a colonial territory by the, the, the French. The French left after the Indian food. The American came in. So the relationship of country like, for example, Vietnam was not particularly friendly toward the West. But today, Vietnam is moving closer and closer to the, to the West. Why? Because they feel threatened. And, and, and if you look around, except perhaps for Myanmar, there's not one single country that today doesn't look at China with some sort of concern. Uh, and that's not to be forgotten also the tension they run between uh, India and China on territorial. They mm -hmm. are uh, on a regular basis a confrontation between China and India. Very interesting. Uh, Stefano, I don't want to take much more of your time. Uh, for anyone listening or watching, where can they follow you? Where can they uh, read the, your research? Uh, where can you, uh, uh, where can we lead them so they can, uh, so they can well, learn definitely, more about you? And definitely uh, in Strategic International. I, I enjoy the contributing with articles and I'm available. Uh, should you, should you, anyone be interested to continue the, uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, and of course, if they are interested in, in our services, they can reach out to uh, Strategic International. And I own also a consulting company, uh, cdasiapacific.com. It's a, it's a company, uh, it's a website of my company. But again, I, I encourage uh, your audience to follow us and to reach out to me through Internet, Strategic International and, and the services we can provide as a as a think tank thank you once again uh for doing this i appreciate your time and uh, the great knowledge that you've shared with all our viewers and listeners uh thank you everyone for tuning my in my pleasure thank and you we will see you all in the next episode thank you so much again stefano thank you thank you for listening to the strategy international podcast Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited, Cyprus. 
All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.